The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. (coughs) Excuse me. This is our last class in this series, actually, where we started last winter on mindfulness of the body and mindfulness of feeling tone in the spring, mindfulness of the mind in the summer, and now this fall, mindfulness of mental qualities or mindfulness of the dhammas. And this uh, list in particular, we're really learning to aim the mind, let's say, aim the heart towards release. So with the first three that we studied in the winter, the spring and summer, where we're just getting to know the activity of the body and the mind with some clarity. So a lot of what we were doing is um, cultivating wise view, a wise understanding, so we could actually be aware of the body. Because, you know, when we hear the instruction, you know, be aware of the body, mostly what are we knowing? the concept, the ideas we have about the body. Same with feeling, tone, same with the mind. So, in terms of these four foundations of mindfulness, a lot of the instructions in this collection of teachings from the Buddha is just helping us. In a way, it's preliminary because it's it's not so much telling us to be mindful, it's giving us some practices so that we can get some space, some freedom from wrong view, the wrong idea of what the body is, and actually be with the body, be with feeling tone, be with the mind. Then when we can actually be present, then we can really shape the mind. That's really what this fourth foundation, you know, it's sort of a strange title, mindfulness of dhammas, mindfulness of mental qualities. It's basically learning how to starve the hindrances and develop or feed the awakening factors. How we pay attention, what we pay attention to, really matters. It's a karmic act, we said, because we're in this, uh, this foundation of mindfulness, particularly we're paying attention with intention. We're paying attention to the hindrances and the factor, factors of awakening on purpose to starve the hindrances and strengthen the factors. But it's not complicated. It's just basically seeing the hindrances for what they are, that they hinder the continuity, clarity, right? That's enough to weaken them. It's the not recognizing the hindering effect of the hindrances like we're angry, but we don't realize how self-destructive the anger is. So then we keep spinning with our angry thoughts and revenge fantasies and on and on. But as soon as we, you know, like some of the disgusting images, like one is, a, you know, just a handful of manure. You wanna, you're angry, you want to throw it at somebody. Well, who gets it on them first? We do. And it's when we see that, like if we actually had a mirror in front of us when we're angry, 
you know, or whatever kind of unhealthy, unhelpful state. If we actually could see the picture, not just the kind of external picture, but if we could somehow sense directly, which we can, we can learn to be aware of that quality of the heart, we would be appropriately disgusted. Oh, this is not what I want to set in motion. I understand why I'm lustful, why I'm hateful, why I'm, you know, deluded. But this is not what I want to set in motion in my heart, in my life, in the world. None of us need more of this, right? But because we're oblivious, we can actually be cultivating unhelpful states for a long time, but only because we're not seeing clearly. So with the factors of awakening, it's, um, it can be a real game-changer because we're not given that much permission and encouragement to notice the beautiful, wholesome qualities. And I really encourage you now that we've sort of spent the last four weeks or more looking at the factors of awakening. Those of you who are artists, you know, put something up somewhere in your home where you'll remember these seven factors. It would just be such a wonderful thing if someone made a resolve, strong resolve, like we could all do right now, once a day, at least once a day, I'm going to bring to mind these seven factors, and I'm going to bring them to mind with enough time and enough interest so as I bring up each of the seven factors, mindfulness, this investigation of dhammas is how it's, but it's really the wisdom factor, being interested in the way it is, being interested in what's skillful and unskillful. So it's that second one. Energy, and we have energy because we sense how useful it is to be developing the wisdom factor of noticing what's helpful and not helpful. So the heart becomes steadfast, ardent. Oh yeah, this is good stuff. I'm going to stick to this. Stick to this discernment. And when those three build up some momentum, there's some real flow. Because the mind is really coming into alignment with the way it is. It's not in conflict with the moment. It's really aligned with being intimate with the moment in order to understand it. And there's some buoyancy that arises then, some joy. And the joy ignites the ease of heart, the tranquility, a more profound settling. And I mentioned just on a gross outer level, that tranquility is that feeling of, I don't want to move, don't want to do, don't want to go. There's a contentment to be, to be doing what, being where you are, doing what you're doing, not needing to move. Like even mentally, I don't even want to go there. I am totally fine being here. I could think of that, but there's a sort of settledness. And it, it really has a sense of like, <clears throat> not going to budge from the present moment. And that just matures into concentration, stillness, 
And that one of the characteristics of deeper concentration is the peace. Like tranquility is, is more naturally pleasant, it's a pleasant experience. But when the stillness of concentration is more developed, it's like what makes the mind so peaceful is it's in a way beyond pleasant and unpleasant. The stillness, the silence, the space, is sort of removed enough from the normal agitated place of like looking for a nice experience, looking to get away from an unpleasant experience. It just is distant from that, and that's why it's so peaceful. The mind is, has some immunity from desire. Because desire is an agitating force in the mind. Even like a relatively wholesome desire. So, that's the stillness. And, and that matures it, it sort of um, affects the mind's understanding or it affects the mind's relationship to sense experience. So now the mind, which is aware, it has greater capacity for awareness, you know, so it doesn't the concentration doesn't just have to be retreated. That stillness can be in the realm of eyes that see and ears that hear and skin that feels, touches. But now the mind has a different relationship to sense experience. It's not pushed around by pleasure and pain. Because of this stillness or this peace, right, it knows Equanimity is the mind, and I'll talk more about this tonight, but the mind has a different relationship to sense experience that can arise from both, in part from seclusion, like just being away, away from um, provocative sense experience, but the deeper equanimity arises because of wisdom. Like there, that the pleasant and unpleasant sense experiences aren't worthy of reactivity. So somebody brings over a freshly baked apple pie, good friend walks in, they've got really good vanilla ice cream to go with the warm pie, you know, it's going to be really pleasant. But equanimity, it's not like oblivious to the fact that it will be pleasant, but it, it kind of, it's like seeing that whole experience from a vast view. Like a more, just this is sort of simplistic, but an ordinary mind, a relatively unwise mind, would be totally focused on the first bites and how nice it's going to be. But just to kind of get a sense of what equanimity is, it's understanding that experience of eating the apple pie in terms of the billions of seconds of my life. So there'll be those seconds, but in the context of whatever it is, billions or millions of seconds of moments. So all of a sudden, the intensity of that pleasure of eating the warm apple pie with ice cream, in the great scheme of things, it isn't much ado about nothing. Or it is much ado about nothing, right? It's the same thing, you know, when you 
go buy your next cell phone or your next car and you just have the big picture instead of like how nice it will be to have a cell phone that has batteries that last more than two hours or something like that. But you, you're aware of the whole arc, you know. It will probably be nice for a while and then it will be out of date, you know, and then it will start having problems and then it will be useless. And it, you see how that evoked that, just the, the biggest perspective. And this is that balance of equanimity. It's like you get something really nice, but you, you get that thing you've wanted for a long time with the context that you're going to die someday, and you don't know when. What sort of changes is like, okay, I got the cabin, but I can't really use it to make me happy forever because I know I'm going to die and I don't know when. And it sort of takes away the delusion that this sense experience, whether it's a positive one or a negative one, unpleasant one, it's just less impactful. So this just gives you a flavor of the equanimity. So this is the request and I mentioned early on in the course that you know at the time the nuns and monks they would use this list of seven and the teachings around these seven factors as a way to bring about healing because you know a lot of what I'm not just talking about ordinary healing like somebody's got a terrible illness or whatever and they ask a fellow monastic to come and chant the teachings around the seven factors of awakening. Because just the fact that there are these qualities, these inherent qualities of the mind that can be developed and cultivated and brought into balance, and how when brought into balance, they inevitably slope to Nibbana, toward the release, the unshakable release of the heart. It just changes the mind's relationship to the cancer or the aging or the whatever's going on. Because without these kinds of teachings, these difficult experiences that show up for us eventually, we feel really cornered. It's like this thing is taking my health away or this situation at work is taking my financial security away. And if that's the ground that we get our ease from because I've got a job or I've got my health or I have this relationship and then it's gone. We really feel like a cornered animal when those things happen. I'm sure we all have our own experiences where, you know, something was taken away that we weren't expecting and we were really attached and we felt really exposed. <laughs> And so if somebody were to come in and to remind us of something that we've been developing our understanding around, there is a way to bring this heart into balance here and now in the present moment in a way, not theoretically, it's not like based on belief, it's based on experience. This is really the taste of freedom the Buddha talks about. And we want to be on the lookout for the, the taste of freedom. I don't know if people saw, but I, when I sent the email 
reminded you about the class tonight out earlier this afternoon. I included a link for an article by Tanisaro Bhikkhu, a wonderful translator and Buddhist monk. He's the abbot of a monastery outside of San Diego, Wat Metta. Wat is the Thai word for monastery. Um, and so he's, uh, he's a Westerner, but he uh, practiced in Thailand for many years before coming back to the United States. And it's about some of his teachers, and one of his Thai forest elders, a respected teacher in Thailand that he was able to practice with, had this really, I think, beautiful teaching. And it's, you know, it's the title of the article, that mountains are only heavy if you try to lift them. And it's, it's really, it speaks to equanimity, and it really speaks to the whole path, the unshakable release. Because, you know, the difference between a Buddha and you and me isn't that the Buddha doesn't get, have an aging body or body susceptible to sickness, or in the Buddha's case, of, you know, a life susceptible to his even evil cousin, Devadatta. I don't know if you know the stories of Devadatta, but he had, uh, he was able to concentrate his mind pretty well and he had some psychic powers as the stories go. But uh, he was really jealous of the Buddha and he wanted, you know, recognition and wanted to take over the monastic Sangha and did some terrible things to the Buddha. Um, yeah, so the Buddha has these you know, flies and mosquitoes and evil cousins and just like we do in his life. So what is that unshakable release? Right? So when those difficult or beautiful things show up, if the mind comes into conflict, like I really want this beautiful thing to last and to be just the way I want it to be, or I really want this terrible thing to go away, then the heart is in a way at war, in conflict with the underlying nature that things come and go according to innumerable causes and conditions. Nobody is in control governing the unfolding. And so the release, these factors of awakening, when they're in balance, then that mind in a way, it describes the mind that can come into alignment with experience, with the way it is. The mind that is, has no need for craving, no need for hatred or delusion, because it has the capacity to be in alignment. So that mind is empty of ignorance, empty of greed, hatred, and delusion, empty of craving, empty of selfing. And it's like uh, the taste of that freedom, you know, when we have even a little glimpse or the mind moves some in that direction, it's really a sense that the aftertaste is, it's not a problem. I don't know why it's not a problem, but I, like, we might be losing somebody we love or we might be recognizing that my hair is falling out as I get older or my body's not as capable as it used to be because of the aging process or any of the normal insults but the, the taste of freedom is 
the release of the heart isn't dependent on these conditions. The ease, release of the heart isn't dependent on being in control or isn't dependent on anything. That's what the, that sense of alignment reveals, that non-dependence. That's why we say that awakening is described as an unconditioned happiness. It's not a happiness that's there in our heart because of some condition. It's a happiness that's there because the mind has come into alignment. And this teaching, you know, in the fourth foundation is really about how do we cultivate the conditions for awakening. It might have been the Trungpa Rinpoche, this well-known Tibetan um, teacher, controversial Tibetan teacher in the 60s and 70s, I forget when he died, maybe early 80s. Um, but I think it was him who said, you know, uh, awakening is an accident and practice is making ourselves accident prone. <laughs> and in a way, it's like remembering the factors of awakening, making them good friends, bringing them to mind, learning to recognize them, learning how to shape the mind with these seven factors so that the, the mind is really, truly a thing of beauty, the balance of it. It's like it's a nice uh, reflection with equanimity to really see it as a, a beautiful thing when the mind is really balanced, not reacting to experience, but really there, vividly present, intimate with sound, thought, whatever might be coming and going in the field of awareness. But this equanimity, the balance remains unmoved. Clear, sensitive or intimate, but unmoved. And the Buddha talks about it exactly this way. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and sorrow, come and go like the wind. To be happy, rest like a giant tree in the midst of them all. In another way, he used the image of a, you know, a rock that remains unshaken. A mind unshaken when touched by worldly states, sorrowless, stainless, secure. This is the blessing supreme. Another place the Buddha says that a, that a practitioner becomes worthy of respect and offerings if they are neither elated nor depressed in regard to what is experienced through the six senses. Remember the mind, mental activities, the six of the six senses. But instead dwells with equanimity, mindful, mindfulness and clear comprehension. And even as an idea, this is quite powerful. So if you're going to think about stuff, mentally proliferate, talk to your friends, talk to them about the seven factors of awakening and equanimity, right? Because there's, it's like a, sometimes I call it a wormhole, like because we've had some experience already with equanimity, just like we know reactivity pretty well. Anybody not know the experience of reactivity? 
you know, when our mind is really on the edge, sensitive, and just basically <clears throat> hunting for the next thing to react to. You know, like when we're ir- irritable, we're just looking for the next thing to bother me. It really stands out when we're married or you're living with someone, you know, because it's just so ridiculous, that state, where you're just like, and it may be that you're not even bothered by the person initially, but they're just sort of conveniently there so that you can continue your outrage about what's not perfect in the world and notice this and notice that. And you can even notice that there's frustration if you can't find things to be frustrated by, right? It's like, damn. (laughs) And then generally we turn the news on so we find more things to be frustrated by, right? To keep the fires of hatred, aversion going. This is from Charlotte Catherine, a good friend of mine, or a Dharma friend of mine. And uh, she's also a wonderful Buddhist author, a Dharma teacher in San Jose. Uh, but she teaches around. And she wrote a nice article, Equanimity in Every Bite, where she wrote, Neither the coarse feeling of unpleasantness nor the agitated feeling of pleasure Equanimity, the Buddha said, is one of the highest kinds of happiness beyond compare with mere pleasant feelings. Superior to delight and joy, true equanimity remains undisturbed as events change from hot to cold, from bitter to sweet, from easy to difficult. This neutral feeling is so subtle that it can be difficult to discern. Yeah, it's like a whole... Uh, new vocabulary like getting to know evenness getting to know balance because you know the the mind has really mostly been dominated by reactivity and conflict hope and fear right? these sort of more agitated states and so when we start to access and uh, have more experiences of equanimity it can kind of throw the mind for a loop, like... I remember, I've, I've mentioned this to some of you before, on a longer retreat, just uh, having more states of equanimity, and I, I remember for several days I felt off, but I couldn't quite put my finger on what was going on. Something felt off, a little flat, nothing's happening. And then I just remember one moment, you know, after being a little bit frustrated by not being able to comprehend what it is that was happening. And it was just like this dawning, oh, this is equanimity. This is this seeing, experiencing equanimity in a way the mind hadn't seen it or experienced it before. More stable, more pronounced, dominating the mind in a way it hadn't really, that I remembered, dominated the mind. And it's like cultivating a taste. Just like, you know, when in the Buddhist framework, 
the deepest happiness is this peace. It is an ecstasy. There is definitely ecstasy, you know, just different, like we talked about, we weren't here a couple weeks ago, and I even gave you that little section from Joseph Goldstein, a different book of Joseph Goldstein, where he talks about the five types of rapture, right? Really, you know, vivid descriptions of those energetic, ecstatic experiences that can arise that sort of showering of joy through the body and mind. But is it the deepest happiness? And she goes on here in this article, this is Shaila Catherine again, equanimity is steady through the vicissitudes, equally close to the things you may like and the things you do not like. Right, so that's the cool thing about equanimity that Steadiness, the intimacy with conditions, with reality, don't get disturbed when it goes from pleasant to unpleasant or unpleasant to pleasant. Because the, the balance is more unconditioned. Right? And remember, the, the superficial kind of equanimity is that balance that arises because all the conditions are nice. You put me in a certain environment where I have everything I like, my mind will be pretty equanimous, pretty balanced. But that's an equanimity that's there because I have everything I want. The conditions are just right. Someone's rubbing my shoulders and nice breeze, not too much, not too little, good view, all those sort of things. And there's that natural contentment and balance. But you start taking some of those nice factors away and then the mind's agitated. So she's really talking, like with the deeper equanimity, it really isn't dependent on conditions. Observe when the tendency to move away from what you do not like ends and the tendency to hold on to what you do like is also absent. Personal preference no longer dictates the direction of attention. Equanimity contains the complete willingness to behold the pleasant and the painful events of life equally. Now it's like this. Now it's like this. It points to a deep balance in which you are not pushed and pulled between the co uh, coercive energies of desire and aversion. Equanimity has the capacity to embrace extremes without getting thrown off balance. Equanimity takes interest in whatever is occurring simply because it is occurring. Right? Intimate, not because I chose or I want, intimate because this is a, what's arising, this is here. Equanimity does not include the aversive states of indifference, boredom, coldness, or hesitation. It is an expression of calm, and I think this is a good word to put in when we, whenever we're thinking or talking about equanimity. Uh, it's an expression of calm, radiant balance that takes whatever comes in stride. That word radiant is nice because it, like uh, Shaila is sort of suggesting, there's a, 
habit we have of equating equanimity with a kind of indifference or resignation. Yeah, I know better than to react when good things happen or bad things happen. And we're sort of uh, restraining, it's sort of like a preliminary step where we know better than to get excited when something good happens because we know it's not going to last forever. We were talking about this maybe on the retreat. Uh, Shelley Graf and I led a retreat this weekend. And I think it was there where we were talking about concentration and nice experiences. Um, and uh, somebody was sharing about that, you know, like the excitement when there's a really expansive, beautiful state of concentration. And, uh, you know, wanting it to last. So we can disturb ourselves with that habit of wanting this nice state of mind to last. But we can also disturb ourselves, disturb the mind when what arises when there's a nice state is, don't cling, don't cling. <laughs> you know? So it's like, uh, how can we just let nature unfold? It's a real profound shift because we're pretty sure that experience is going to save the day. And one way we can define wisdom, it's the deepening understanding that experience is never going to save the day. It's a radical shift in the mind's relationship to sense experience. When we say, you know, the standard definition of Nibbana or awakening is realizing the heart free of grasping, it's like saying, realizing the mind, the heart, that isn't dependent on sense experience. And it's nice to say it that way because it makes us humble, like, oh, I don't know if I know that experience. The mind I know always has an agenda with sense experience. You know, identified with our preferences, right? Is that the mind you know? Yeah. But how about the mind that it's really hands-off with sense experience. But not indifferent, because indifference is sort of that resignation or I know I shouldn't be attached, because it always burns me. So we're refraining from attachment, and this is a good practice. You know, it's like we're going somewhere, we don't have any money, but we're going somewhere with a lot of nice things are for sale that we like, right? We practice that restraint, like don't imagine buying that, because you're not going to buy that. You can't have that. It's not for you. You know, and it's better than letting my mind go wild, that sort of repressing or suppressing the desire, and imagining that I can actually have it, only to be betrayed when I realize, you know, I don't have the money in the wallet. I can't buy it. But to be able to see things vividly just as they are the beauty, the beautiful and the horrific, but for it to not trigger craving or grasping, or the sense that there's a somebody who would benefit or would be harmed, not to go there. And it's really important that we, uh, you know, 
that we always ground the idea of equanimity with experience because it's easy for the shadow to creep in. And it's, it's there, it's probably there in all of us. It's like, oh, okay, so attachment to sense experience is the problem. So then it's sort of like we talk ourselves into, okay, Mark, don't be attached to sense experience. And uh, one of my teachers in these three-month retreats I did back in the 90s and a little bit uh, later in the early 2000s at IMS, uh, Michelle McDonald, she said once, uh, one of the great things about being on a long retreat is that we drop some of our false equanimity. It's just too heavy, it's just too stressful to keep pretending we're equanimous. And we become a little bit more real, <laughs> you know? And when we're upset, we're not afraid. We're equanimous about being upset. Instead of thinking equanimity, oh, I should be, a, I'm a Buddhist, I shouldn't get upset. I should be even, right? I heard that, I heard Mark say that word even. So I'm gonna be even, I'm gonna have this flat, thrown affect and uh, nothing's going to bother me. And it's so nice, like real equanimity is like understanding that sometimes it's like this. And the heart is freaked out or afraid or lustful. Because that's where we start the equanimity is realizing that's just a reactive state of mind. It feels like this, it looks like this. What does balance look like when my mind is like this? What is equanimity when it's like this? Not how to look like I'm, an, uh, like I'm equanimous. Reb Anderson, um, who was the abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center uh, way back, um, maybe in the 80s or even the 70s, um, and has uh, written a number of books. He's a Zen teacher, still alive, and uh, probably the, still the senior teacher at Green Gulch, which is owned by the San Francisco Zen Center north of San Francisco. It's a beautiful place. Some people from Kamgarn have gone there to do some practice. And uh, But in, I think one of his books, I forget where I heard this, maybe in one of his talks, he used to come to Minneapolis to teach regularly and I'd go listen to his programs and do some of his retreats. And, uh, but he made this distinction between uh, kind of an ordinary practitioner and somebody who's done a lot of practice. And he said, an ordinary practitioner is feeling vulnerable some of the time, but a really experienced practitioner is feeling vulnerable all the time. And so equanimity, that balance, isn't somehow convincing ourselves I'm, a, I'm above it all, but realizing, no, like realizing the whole catastrophe of life, how I'm an animal with animal instincts. So what does equanimity look like when we're actually grounded in the reality that we're actually all animals with our animal conditioning, right? We forget that billions or millions of years of evolutionary conditioning. Here, here it is. To be social, to be antisocial, to survive, all the different 
reverberations of our conditioning. And the reason I'm just spending time on that is uh, just to get a sense of how easy it is for there to be a shadow. And to really, this is why like sometimes at the end of a set, I'll recommend, you know, to open the eyes, to let go of the concentration object, whatever it might be. And just to really see that the whole purpose of a deeper meditation experience is to let it go. That was the basic, I mean, the Buddha taught meditation in a number of different ways. But for people who had the capacity to go into a deep state of concentration or jhana, the whole point was to get it to a really beautiful, peaceful place and then eventually observe it dissolve. Like, and the mind goes from being in a very beautiful, peaceful, exalted state of concentration back to an ordinary state of consciousness, right? Because eventually it's going to fall away. It arose, the concentration arose conditionally due to supporting causes, lasted for a while. And then when it, that's when, that would be the transition from doing a more concentration-oriented practice to doing a wisdom. The first object for the wisdom meditation is to observe that all conditioned things arise and then they cease. And then it would be a perfect time to observe if there's equanimity when the nice meditation experience falls away and other mental qualities start coming like, oh, I want more of this, or I wonder if my set was better than my friend over here, or whatever might come in at that moment. No, please don't go away. This was so nice. Go back to the to-do lists and all the things I have to do and all the messy stuff in human life like relationships and that's just the way power uh, Shelley and a couple other leaders at the center were doing this two-day conference that uh, foundation is sponsored for all the different leaders of the Buddhist Sanghas in the Twin Cities area so there are about 30 of us we're doing it at the Minnesota Zen Center we brought in a teacher, trainer from Texas about power and ethics and just like how to be aware of, of power. And it's like, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things in the workshop, but one of the things we did this afternoon, she was just reviewing the research that people who have power, whether it's you know institutional power or whatever, status power, but people who have power regularly it inevitably has a corrupting effect around things like empathy. I mean, all kinds of demonstrable ill effects on one's personality or um, ways of being in community. I mean, there's ways to mediate those so-called you know, bad effects. But it's like that old adage, what is it, like power corrupts absolutely? Or is that what it is? Power corrupts. Yeah, and there's some real truth. I mean, and it's really up to the community to mediate because you—it's not like 
The answer is not to have anybody with power, because that's chaos, right? So people are going to have power, we need to use it, and we need to mediate those who have power, kind of manage it so that the ill effects, there's a counterweight to the ill effects. That's part of what the workshop, the two-day workshop's about. But the, the reason I bring it up is it's such a messy, messy part of our lives, just dealing with power. And so this, these are the places we can really, besides the meditative work with the seven factors, really see how practical they can be in these sticky places. Mindfulness, this is being known, investigation of dhammas, right? But that means we, we're using this reflective knowing we call mindfulness in order to observe this heart and this community interaction, like we're in a business meeting or whatever it is, in terms of feeding suffering, feeding release. And the energy builds because we see how functional it is. It's so, so pragmatic to have that point of view when we go to the grocery store, when we're in a business meeting, when we're talking to our partner at home. And the joy, the rapture. Oh, this is the way to go. This is the way to live. And then the subtleness of tranquility and the concentration. So it will be different out in the world, these seven factors. But we really want to make them our good friend and really get interested. It's said in the tradition that the flavor, the sense of equanimity, equipoise, is for us ordinary human beings how to have a little bit of the sense of Nibbana, that balance, that radiant balance. It's like, what is the... What is the state of a Buddha? Well, it's, it's unknowable, but understanding real equanimity, not as an indifference, as a resignation, but as a radiant balance, not easily moved, not easily thrown off. In one way I, that I found useful, especially in daily life, but also I'll use it in sit, sitting practice, and you might need to find a different word, but for me the word ease, I really like that word. And just because I've been meditating for a while and practicing for a while, I have a pretty clear memory of ease. I know what ease feels like, right? So just remembering that word, because equanimity is, one, more of a mouthful, but it's also, you know, it has a lot of different connotations. But ease is a little bit more visceral, like contentment, contentedness. And what we mean with the word ease, like if you repeat it as a kind of mantra or reminder, it's really ease with these conditions. And now ease with these conditions. And it's really not a demand, it's not a forcing, it's just a, a curiosity. Ease with these conditions? <laughs> Is that possible? How about being easeful with these conditions? Maybe there's a lot of doubt, like I don't know if I can be easeful. What can I be easeful with the doubt? Because we're, 
we want to just kind of find our way to that place where the heart has confidence in letting everything be. It's kind of that free fall. You probably remember the story because it gets told so many times of Joseph Goldstein's story about someone being thrown out of an airplane without a parachute and totally freaking out because they're falling, falling, falling. And after a while realizing there's no ground to hit. And then that shift. Is it a problem? And it's it's a little bit like uh, playing that like, uh, okay, it's like this. I could freak out. Because it's like Shantideva, this uh, famous Buddhist monk from the ninth century, said, you know, if there's something you can do, do it. If there's nothing you can do, there's nothing you can do. But why be tight? I mean, that's a rough paraphrase. If there's something you can do, do it. If this moment is asking you to do something, then do it. If the moment's really not demanding that you do anything, okay, there's nothing you need to do. Why be tight? Why be reactive? Why not rest in that beautiful balance? Well, let me leave it here. And uh, time for maybe a couple questions. Maybe I'll check with uh, those online first. Any experiences of equanimity or questions come to mind? And just generally about the awakening factors, you can just uh, raise your digital hand or unmute yourself. Anything come to mind? Yeah, is it Rocky? Yes, hi Mark. Um, first of all, thank you so much for for this uh, eight-week series. It was really helpful to just uh, stay connected to this and practice. Um, So my question is uh, about the, uh, you know, in the meditation today, there was one instruction that you gave that I would love uh, to get more clarification on. How do you know what is here without feeding it? Um, I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> but I think that the, the key distinction is knowing something without feeding it and how you know the difference. Um, yeah, I'd love to uh, understand that a little bit better. Yeah, that's an excellent yeah. question. And it isn't easy because... Uh, Because our knowing, the mindfulness, is corruptible, right? There can be a filter of aversion, like I'm paying attention in order to make something go away. So that's why it's really worthwhile to presume we don't, like, we always have to come back to what mindfulness is here and now, and not to presume we're mindful. Because like I said in the guided meditation, mindfulness is that it's knowing what the mind is knowing. So it's a stepping back in order to really see what's going on. And then you'll know it doesn't really have an agenda. 
If there's an agenda, then mindfulness can be aware of that agenda to fix something, to make something go away. And we'll make a lot of mistakes. I try to remember the line from our facilitator today. She said about these difficult things, you know, we can learn, I think she said something like, you can learn anything as long as you're willing to make a mess of it and, you know, just keep failing long enough. You can learn anything. And it's the same thing with the question you're asking. We'll learn how to be aware of that and to investigate it in terms of what's skillful and unskillful. But we're going to make a lot of mistakes in exactly the way you suggest, where we're aware of it, but somehow we're feeding greed, hatred, or delusion. Because it's there mixed in with the awareness. But eventually, we'll see, because we're planting seeds for more stress, and we'll keep stepping back, and we'll, there will be that natural investigation, what's here but not being acknowledged? Oh, I'm rushing. Or, oh, I'm aversive. Oh, I still want this to go away. Mindfulness doesn't want anything to come or go. Mindfulness is just recognizing what the mind is knowing. It's just an honest recollection. Oh, this is what's being known. And that's, we shouldn't be uh, certain that our mindfulness is mindful. <laughs> yeah, thanks for the great comment. Thank you so much. That was really helpful. Anybody in the room here have a comment, example that you'd like to share or a question that comes to mind about equanimity or the factors of awakening? I'll just mention a few. Um, someone asked about the winter course. So uh, we finished our four foundations of mindfulness. In the winter, we're going to do uh, metta, loving kindness and compassion. And then in the spring, we'll do mudita and equanimity again. Um, but more from the Brahma-Vihara, the Divine Abode perspective, although there's definitely a lot of overlap. So that will begin on January 10th, eight Mondays, beginning that second Monday of January. So please join in. We'll send out, probably Gabe will send out a, an email to all of you on the Buddhist Studies email list to register for that in a month or so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.